Welcome to California Groundbreakers, which focuses on the place that starts trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done nationwide and around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. We've created a new podcast series called This Changes Everything, which focuses on what California will look like in the post-pandemic future. We'll be talking with California groundbreakers about how they see the Golden State changing for the better, for the worse, or still to be determined as we move out of shutdown. If you like what you hear, please consider making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support Us link on our SoundCloud podcast page or on the Donate tab of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. In the last episode, we talked with CEOs about doing business in post-pandemic California. This time, we're getting the workers' point of view about how it should be done. California has places of immense wealth and of punishing poverty. One place where they coexist is Silicon Valley, known for its big tech, high housing prices, long commutes, and at many businesses, low wages and low levels of diversity. Workers there are fed up with doing business as usual during these challenging times, and they're fighting back. Now coders and engineers who earn six-figure salaries are following in the footsteps of the lower-paid workers who make their campuses run and embracing the idea of labor unions. Some of the first to do so? Several hundred workers from Google's parent company, Alphabet, who announced back in January the creation of the Alphabet Workers Union. In this episode, we're talking with two people who believe in the power of collective action to make Silicon Valley a more equitable place. Maria Noel Fernandez is the director of Silicon Valley Rising, a coalition focused on raising wages and work standards for blue-collar tech workers. Christopher Schmidt is a software engineer at Google and founding member of the brand new Alphabet Workers Union. Listen in as I talk about their visions of a 21st century type of labor union and its potential not only to improve the lives of workers, but to produce meaningful social and political change in California. Hi everyone, my name is Vanessa Richardson and I'm Executive Director of California Groundbreakers. Welcome to our latest episode of This Changes Everything and thanks for tuning in. So as Caleb Clark said up top, we've talked in episode four with upper management about doing business in California going forward. And now here in episode five, we're going to get the workers point of view. As in so many things, California has had some notable moments in workers' rights and the labor movement. Obviously, there's Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, who co-founded the National Farm Workers Association, later to become the United Farm Workers. And most recently, California had some big battles about the gig economy over the state legislature passing Assembly Bill 5, which extended employee classification status to some gig workers. And then in the past election, the voters passed Proposition 22, which reversed that status for a lot of those gig workers. So the state is a testing ground in so many ways when it comes to what the working relationship should be like between management, employees, contractors, gig workers, and everyone else involved in the situation. So today we're going to focus on the testing ground of Silicon Valley. It's most famous for being the testing ground for technology, of course, but right now it's also the place where a new type, or at least an updated type, of organized labor initiative is happening, with both blue-collar and white-collar employees involved. And it's not just about more pay and better benefits, it's about creating a different type of tech company. And as I read on the website of an organization that one of my guests here today runs, it's about bringing everyone in this valley together to solve the biggest challenges of our time. 
So let me introduce my guest today. First, we have Maria Noel Fernandez. She is the campaign director for Silicon Valley Rising, a coordinated regional effort that's inspiring an inclusive tech-driven economy. And that's where I read that quote about bringing everyone in the Valley together. And so, so, so far, Silicon Valley Rising, or SVR uh, for short, has helped more than 5,500 service workers in the tech industry organize for better wages and a voice at work. And also here we have Christopher Schmidt. He's a software engineer at Google and a member of the Alphabet Workers Union. Alphabet is the parent company of Google. And the Alphabet Workers Union only got its start in late January of this year officially, but it already has 800 members. That's full-time employees as well as temp workers and vendors. And its mission in part is to ensure that our workplace is equitable and Alphabet acts ethically. And I remember that Google's founder said its motto was, don't be evil. So I'm assuming that the Alphabet Workers Union is to make sure they live up to that motto. So Chris and Maria, thank you very much for joining us today. Maria, I wanted to start with you because I wanted you to describe Silicon Valley Rising, the coalition, uh, what you're focusing on, um, and what you'd like to do. Yeah, first of all, thank you, Vanessa, for having me on with you all uh, today. So Silicon Valley Rising started with this idea that folks here in Silicon Valley, the workers that make Silicon Valley run every single day, needed to be driving the conversation around what was A, happening here, and B, what we needed to shift and change in the tech industry. And so community organizations, labor organizations, faith organizations came together to say, Number one, we need to unveil the reality of what the workforce is experiencing here and mostly what was once known as the invisible workforce and that feels like we're continuously having to fight to um, bring to light. And then number two is that we needed to make tangible changes around affordable housing and bringing it to the tech industry and saying, y'all have a role, you need to be accountable and here's how we think we ne you need to do that. Number two, around workers organizing. Workers were in motion and workers, um, you know, stories around them sleeping in their cars, um, different badges, you know, really developing different classes of workers within the tech industry. All the things that I think now we all know about at the time when Silicon Valley Rising came together, none of that was really known. And so um, addressing these issues, organizing around them, having tangible changes in these workers' lives, but having, you know, dignity, having these workers actually be seen as part of the tech industry. And so it was with these kind of principles or pillars to Silicon Valley Rising that we came together and now years later can really point to some wins around these issues. And Chris, I wanted to ask you uh, about Alphabet Workers Union because Google has a reputation for paying its workers pretty well. I, I think a six-figure starting salary is not too uncommon in the Bay Area. And it's typically been on the most desirable places to work list, best places to work list that they put out every year. So what, what made you and some of your peers decide to found the union and what do you want to achieve? Yeah, thanks so much. You know, the union is is really the culmination of a long series of efforts that has been focused on improving conditions for workers and improving conditions uh, and, and how Google behaves. I think you pointed out earlier that Google's motto started out as don't be evil, although it's now evolved to do the right thing. Um, however, the, uh, you know, the, the don't be evil, you know, evil is, 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 
something that's always subjective, but I can look at many things that Google has done over the past few years and say, that doesn't fit my vision of what don't be evil means. And and I haven't been the only one and, and workers you know, across the company have felt that for many years. Um, you've seen a long history inside Google of um, organizing, organizing around product issues internally and later um, very publicly around uh, workplace issues in the walkout for real change in 2018 and other responses to issues like sexual harassment uh, in the office. Um, the Alphabet Workers Union is, you know, continuation of many of those efforts. It has brought together those workers who were together, but usually organized around a specific issue or a specific campaign and intended to create a long-term and long-standing structure to kind of carry those campaigns forward and ensure that we could follow through on them uh, and, and really hold Google to account. Something that, you know, when Google wanted to be friendly and wanted to work with you, that was great, but over time we've seen that has become less and less true, um, and there was just a need for a more structured response. Um, I think the other thing that is really important, and I think you know you've pointed this out, is the the need to work in a wall to wall way across Google and Alphabet. Um, across these companies, uh, not just among software engineers, not just among tech workers, um, but you know there are, there are hundreds of thousands, more than 100,000 workers across the world who work in Google who are not full-time engineers, um, who work in the same offices, in many of the same places, um, doing, in many cases, very similar or the same jobs as full-time engineers or full-time you know, data center workers or other people do, um, and are paid lower wages, have different benefits, have different situations, and, and and, you know, this is something that, as as Maria pointed out, uh, we've been seeing more awareness of for years, um, but there hadn't historically been a, a lot of ability to connect because Google has made connection there very difficult. It's made communications very difficult. It's intentionally treated these classes of workers as separate to try and keep them apart. And it meant that we couldn't, you know, fight for the correct changes. And so while a software engineer starting in the Bay Area um, working for Google might make, you know, a six-figure salary, uh, someone working at the desk over from them who works for a vendor company might make half that much. Uh, and workers who are working in Google's data centers are paid $15 an hour, uh, you know, very similar to what you'd see in other kind of low-paid work, difficult, you know, Amazon warehouse workers or other things like that. And so the need and ability to work together to improve these working conditions for all of us um, around pay, as well as to force Google to ensure that it lives up to that promise of not being evil is really important to us and to those workers. So it's notable, you both have said, you know, there's different tiers of uh, and different types of technology jobs in Silicon Valley. Uh, I'm not sure if this is the first time that someone from Alphabet Workers Union and someone from Silicon Valley Rising have talked or been together uh, in the same, you know, room, so to speak. But I am wondering if, if you are talking more with organizations uh, like, like that you're doing, uh, are people in these different tiers coming together and joining up to solve these challenges um, or should they? And what, what do you think would be the results if you, if you collaborate? You know, one of the most powerful moments for me um, through this work with Silicon Valley Rising is exactly that, Vanessa. Um, you know, seeing service workers in, in actually different parts of service come together, you know, like janitors don't necessarily know they're like cafeteria workers or the, you know, the folks that are driving the buses. And, you know, part of Silicon Valley Rising's real strength in my perspective has been that this wasn't just about one class of workers, but it was a, about a movement of workers saying, here's our expectation of how tech should treat us. And then 
the additional step to that is that it's been very powerful to have tech workers or um, you know folks that usually we see as tech workers, you know, engineers, et cetera, standing in solidarity. And you know, I think many folks have shared with us that seeing cafeteria workers, service workers within tech stand up for their collective rights has given them the knowledge and some of the, the motivation to really step into how they wanted to be treated as workers too. So I think it's solidarity. It's I think it's uh, building a worker movement, but also kind of a awareness around what we want as workers, period. Yeah, and I'll just add to that, you know, I think one of the one of the earliest successes I think that we had in this space was actually um, within Alphabet Workers Union long before we were public, long before, you know, anyone knew that we existed, uh, was actually connecting, you know, some of our, um, you know, making connections between our group that was working inside of an office in, um, you know, inside Google um, with, you know, Unite Here organizers who didn't have a connection inside the office and were able to successfully, you know, bring a new site into their overall, you know, unionized workforce of cafeteria workers across Google. Um, I, I think that the most important thing across the board is ensuring that we, you know, build power for workers, ensure that they're protected, you know, bring them together, um, and and that's really important. And I, I do really want to point out, you know, in a lot of um, tech companies, the the power dynamic that is experienced between, you know, software engineers uh, who have act, direct access to, you know, directors or VPs who may have high level information have access to meetings and everything else like that compared to someone who's working, you know, in a data center in Monk's Corner or, or you know, working, you know, as, as a food service worker in the cafeteria who they're working with these people every day, you know, those people are just as important and have always been just as important to the success of these companies, but they have, you know, pretty much always also been mistreated and, and uh, or at least not treated as well. And I think that that's really, you know, something that we have to leverage the power that, you know, software engineers have um, to, to improve the conditions. And you can't improve anyone's conditions without working alongside them, not on their behalf, but with them to learn what their problems are and, and improve their conditions. So how has it been working with the the big tech, the, the employers, um, and also uh, maybe outside agencies like local and state government, federal government, um, for for both you, Maria, you know, with the coalition and Chris, you internally inside uh, Alphabet and Google, um, you know, I, I saw that Facebook had paid their service workers, kept them on their healthcare plan, even when the offices were closed in the past year. So that seems like a progress, but is enough progress being made? Are they listening? You know, I think we have learned that not every company is equal. And that every company really is very different in how they support their subcontracted service workers, um, you know, how real they are about supporting, um, you know, typically lower wage people of color within their companies, just to be very direct about it. Um, and we have seen folks like Facebook um, do the right thing um, around this and, and make sure that they had their pay through the pandemic, make sure that they had healthcare benefits through the pandemic. And then we've got folks like um, Verizon at Yahoo that made a very different decision and, you know, let folks go almost immediately. 
um, or folks like at Cisco that did something very similar. And so, you know, we have actually seen that through the pandemic, the work that the workers have done over the last few years um, for respect and for dignity and for a voice on the job has actually developed a standard for how workers should be treated. And the vast majority of tech companies that we engage with have held to that. And then we've got these outliers that have made frankly, horrible decisions that, you know, are bad for those workers, but in the pandemic to have people not have healthcare and not have pay, it's bad for all of us. Yeah, I absolutely think that, you know, that there is some some variation there. And I'm, I'm really appreciative that we have been managed to keep, especially the very wealthy tech companies. You know, I think Facebook and Google uh, are, are thankfully for those workers, I guess, in a position where the money isn't the object in quite the same way, where they look at this as a small price to pay for avoiding negative PR or other things like that. Um, I think that where we see more resistance is any time that those companies see themselves as facing uh, a more direct long-term threat. Um, so making short-term promises on pay is one thing, but um, or to continue paying someone for a year is one thing, but offering to you know increase the base salary of workers in data centers is not a thing that we've seen. Working to you know come up with um, minimum standards, you know, I, one of the things I worked on prior to you know Alphabet Workers Union was the campaign to end forced arbitration uh, within Google, which is you know a way to kind of keep uh, you know lawsuits from going to court, which is heavily biased towards the companies. And, and that fight, you know, Google was not cooperative. They were dragging their feet every step of the way. And the only time that they, you know, actually responded is when legislation was adduced, introduced at the federal level to ban forced arbitration and, and you know, wasn't successful because it was, you know, under, under a Republican, you know, Senate regime at that time. But, um, you know, Google fearing that wrath of PR or negative outcomes there is the only reason it changed. So, you know, th their, their motivations are not kindness. Uh, their motivation is towards, you know, long-term success and profitability and, and being able to hold them to promises is good, but, but we have to build more to push them on things that they see as really risky. And that's why we have this whole dual class structure to begin with, is they see it as a long-term risk to, you know, profit and, and other things like that to have to pay benefits and, and salaries. Hi, this is Caleb Clark, executive producer of California Groundbreakers podcasts. We're working on more episodes of This Changes Everything, literally as I speak, but putting them together takes a fair amount of time and money. If you like what you're hearing in this episode and you want to hear more of them, you can help us in two ways. First, consider being a Groundbreaker supporter right now by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers box on the right-hand side of our podcast page on SoundCloud, that's at soundcloud.com slash Groundbreakers, or click on the Donate tab of our homepage of our website at californiagroundbreakers.org. And if you have questions to ask about how California will change in post-pandemic times, or you want to suggest a topic to cover, or an expert to interview for an episode of This Changes Everything, email us at info at californiagroundbreakers.org and give us a few details so we can get in touch. Thanks for lending us your ears and giving us your support as well. 
So sticking with Google, I read recently that they had just announced, uh, or given more details at least, about their plan for building an 80-acre mega campus. I don't know if this is headquarters or just another campus, but locating it in downtown San Jose. Uh, and part of the announcement was they had offered to pay $200 million in community benefits as part of its plans uh, to build the place where, like, I guess as many as 20,000 people could work. And that proposal includes money for building a thousand affordable homes uh, and also anti-displacement efforts like keeping current housing affordable, uh, preventing homeless. So I wanted to ask you both, you know, what, what do you think about this plan and, and their details? Um, and is that a model uh, for other places, you know, in California, if you do have this hub where companies are located and people are coming to work and there you go, the, the housing and the homelessness issues, is this a, a, a possible um, solution? Yeah, so we have been on the ground on this issue for four years now. Um, Silicon Valley Rising jumped um, jumped in immediately when we heard that there were exclusive negotiations happening between the city of San Jose and Google. And to be honest with you, um, I think I, we spent many years doing um, a lot of work, a lot of actions, a lot of press conferences, a lot of report releases, a lot of work to really highlight a few things. One, our concerns with what a campus the size would do to our communities particularly for our communities on the east side, for communities of color in the region. Um, and we spent many years trying to make the case that we needed to have strong community benefits that would lead to one of the biggest community benefits package that we've seen in the region. And so what we have before us now, this draft development agreement, actually meets that. Um, and it meets it being, I think, a model for what development of tech needs to look like in the region, but really across the country. And the pieces that I'm most excited about is that the community fund and those dollars that you just mentioned, Vanessa, are gonna be governed by us. It's not gonna be Google handing out and figuring out who's gonna get the money or the city is gonna figure out who's gonna get the money. We, as part of Silicon Valley Rising and so many other local community groups have said, we want the fund to have our people on it. So we're going to make sure that the advisory committee has folks with lived experience on the board. We are going to make sure that folks have um, experience around uh, anti-displacement work and homeless folks on the committee and saying, here's how we want that money to be dispersed and to have real power. Um, you know, one piece that we heard time and time again was that we need to make sure that money goes to tenants and we need to make sure that, that money goes towards tenant organizing. And so that's something that I think is very unique about this fund is that it gives us the flexibility to invest corporate dollars in organizing. And so when I think about the fund, like that's the kind of piece that I'm really looking forward to. And it's been a long road. I mean, really blood, sweat and tears, <laughs> but we're here now. And I think we've been really clear that um, this is something that we think should be the standard for all tech. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm really, uh, excited with how much progress, you know, has been made there because when you see companies come in and they create, you know, massive amounts of office space, they create demand to be there. Um, you know, in this case, I think it's a really transit oriented development. You know, there's a lot of positives of, you know, environmental benefits of building, you know, dense housing, dense office construction near transit, but not accounting for those, you know, externalities to the community of the cost to, you know, increase prices to, to the increased demand to be in those communities and to the net 
negative impacts, especially on lower income households, households of color, is what you always see when you don't, you know, plan appropriately and create um, some way of, of responding to those those outside effects. So, um, you know, the project, I think, really has evolved so much since from when it started um, towards something that is really going to take those accounts into effect. Um, and and when you're you're having these types of development, you know, there's there's, there's a lot of money in the pot. Uh, there's a lot of money going around and, and making sure that that money, you know, really comes back uh, to ensure that it is a positive benefit to the whole community and not just to the wealthiest and whitest parts of the community is a crucial part of the overall, you know, th- things you need to look for from any development, from any, from any you know, um, project. On that note, I guess in terms of looking at geography and uh, uh, on the ground, a lot of changes obviously have happened in the past 12 months because of the pandemic, because of the shutdown in terms of remote work. Uh, and a lot of people, especially in the Bay Area, I think a lot of the focus there is like what's going to happen to the Bay Area in terms of uh, people Will they have to work there anymore? Will they leave? Will tech companies say, "Ah, I can give up some office space," and and uh, and that might affect downtown and businesses there? I'm wondering what your thoughts are then in terms of like the changes in the last 12 months, the shifts in, I guess, work, work, uh, and uh, you know the the meaning of a, a downtown or the usefulness of a downtown, um, where tech companies may. Uh, you know, locate in the future or ship their workers. Will that change in any way your mission and and your efforts, do you think? You know, for us, it feels too soon to tell. And the reason why I think that is because I also think that the pandemic has shown us is that we need human connection. And so I I think we're all figuring out what does a hybrid model look like what does it look like to do some work at home and some work in person? And, um, you know, I think we're also seeing some companies say, actually, we're going to be opening our office a little sooner than we were planning. And um, so I think I think the verdict is still out. And I think we still need to figure out what that's going to look like. But ultimately for us about, you know, service workers um, that we're working with every day, um, they hope that the work that they've done over the last several years to organize is that whatever decision is made, that it's done in collaboration and not just kind of a, a news release that we all get to see, but that for many of these companies that they're really thinking together about, is there, you know, reskilling that needs to happen? Is there another job within there that folks can really look to, to develop, you know, really thinking together about what does it mean to do some of these shifts? And for some of the folks that, you know, I think that's the difference about having a union on the job or not. It's about being at the table and actually having a voice in some of these decisions that are happening. And so our hope is that um, moving forward, those workers that have organized can really be a part of that. And then also, you know, develop another standard for how other tech companies and other workers that may not be unionized can engage with their companies too. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, the the too soon to tell is definitely true. You know, I think one of the things that we've seen from recent analysis shows that um, most of the migration that folks were kind of experiencing, especially out of San Francisco and New York, it's not migration of, of lower income workers. It's not migration of lower income households. It's, it's the wealthy and the super wealthy who are going off to their vacation homes or who have decided, you know, actually, I can just go to Montana and work from there and I know I'll be able to get another job if I need one. 
one um, for for workers who are really you know uh, in a position where they they don't have those opportunities. The situation hasn't changed, um, and and certainly no long term or lasting change. Uh, and when when we come back to you know uh, vaccination and everything else like that, and we come back to San Francisco, you may see that some of the people who are there are gone. But I think that you know the 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 underlying causes of many of these things, where you have lots of office development, lots of companies placed there, lots of demand, and lots of communities that push back on more housing and push back on more affordable housing and try and you know keep out lower income households from their communities, all of those realities still exist and will still exist after this. Um, I, I think that we're going to see a bump in the road here. Um, for, certainly, you know, the next year or two will be interesting to see. Uh, and 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 as always, you know, lowest income workers are the ones who feel this the most. Um, but uh, I, I don't think we're seeing a permanent trend because if you look in other communities, Boston, Chicago, Miami, you know, you really aren't seeing these migration patterns. Um, I think that those are specific to these very high end markets that have a large portion of workers who are just very, very high income workers and have those opportunities. Um, the, you know, folks, folks are going to come back to San Francisco uh, and, and everything is going to be as pricey again if we don't find ways to kind of fundamentally push to change uh, the overall environment and how and how, you know, folks are working and push for better pay you know like it is it is it is very very difficult to figure out how to afford an apartment in San Francisco when you're making fifty thousand dollars a year or thirty thousand dollars a year working as a child care worker at Google's data center or Google's child care centers and making you know less than six figures income how are you going to live in the Bay Area um, drive till you can afford it is the primary approach used by many workers and and it means we're just pushing people further and further out every year and, it, and it's not a sustainable system and and I think we'll be back to it soon unfortunately. And Vanessa, if I may just add one other thing, or just one thing I'm also noticing is that development isn't slowing. You know, we were just talking about Google's big development in the city of San Jose. Like it didn't get smaller. Like it didn't, it actually didn't shift. And so as we follow the trends around office development for these big tech companies, it's it's not slowing. And so again, like to the, it's too soon to tell. I think, we're, you know, things continue to grow and we'll we'll have to really watch and see what the impact is on all of us. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about work and workers' rights stories that I've been seeing in in the national news, but I think they definitely tie into here in California and Silicon Valley. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you both about is the uh, results of what happened at Amazon's warehouse in Alabama, the town of Bessemer. Uh, there obviously was a lot of national focus on uh, workers there who wanted to unionize. They took a vote and it didn't happen. Um, and I guess from what I read, Amazon had a, a big role to play in making sure the vote went the, against unionizing. I did want to ask you both, you know, what do you think about that decision? What happened there? What does that say about working for a big tech company? I mean, look, what my what I saw is that Amazon followed the playbook, the anti-union playbook, and they put money and used their position and used captive audience meetings, did all the things that I think so many of us have seen corporations that don't want to support their workers really throw down around. And so they followed the playbook. And unfortunately, I think they, what we saw in terms of the actual vote is a result of those very strong tactics done by Amazon. Um, but what I also saw is that nearly 800 folks didn't, didn't 
go with it and did say that they wanted a union. And so while it was disappointing, not totally unsurprising, I also think it also has shown that we can do it. Like we can actually organize, we have to fight back and we have to do the hard work of envisioning what we want work to look like. And even though there was the, the, the no vote, I think my hope and what I'm hearing from others is that it's still an inspiration to see the organizing and all the hard work that went into it. And so many public figures that also said for the first time actually stood up and said, organizing matters, unions matter. And um, it still gives me hope, even though the loss was there. Yeah, and I, I just want to add in, I think, you know, one of the ways in which this applies is actually Amazon went, had the tools and the money, again, to even go above and beyond the regular playbook and bring in many hundreds of new workers as temp workers uh, to to that site, um, folks who were not in the union and then, and then you know, helped swing the vote in their favor. Uh, Amazon was able to convince the city to change the timing of a stoplight so that people couldn't, you know, talk to someone at the exit of the of the building, you know, there's this leverage of this massive power that that large tech companies and large companies overall, this is just a problem in tech, have over over you know not just a business, not just their employees, but over an entire economic industry in an entire town or community or region. And many of these cases, where they're the largest employer for 20 miles around, it's the only place you can make you know $15 an hour in what used to be $23 an hour work um, is is an Amazon, you know, they can leverage that power in a way that is tremendous. And I think that one of the things that I think um, many in the community have pointed out is that many of the tactics that Amazon engaged in should be illegal and would be illegal if the PRO Act were to pass. Um, I think that, you know, we have seen the the lack of enforcement against companies that engage in anti-union activity. We've seen this even at Google, where there's already a unionized, you know, unionized workforce that's currently going through a bargaining process, which is not being done in good faith with a H, you know, contractor under Google. Um, you know, we see these things and we need to build that power legislatively as well as building it with the workers. Um, but I do think, you know, as, as Maria said, you know, 800 workers in an Amazon warehouse after all of that that went through standing up and saying yes is, is a huge inspiration. And, and, you know, this isn't going to be the end of Amazon, you know, warehouse workers unionizing. It's just the start. Uh, and we're going to see a lot more of that in the next couple of years, I expect. When I was researching the topics to ask you for this podcast, I saw a lot of articles recently about, I guess, the meaning of work and how people are viewing it. Uh, for example, you know, in the journalism field, I see a lot of, not a lot, but at least a few notable examples of top editors, like at Wired Magazine and uh, uh, Texas Tribune, saying, "I'm I'm done. I'm I'm stepping away. I'm I'm burnt out." Um, there's as an article in the New York Times, uh, a lot of uh, people quoted in there from probably San Francisco area about YOLO. You only live once and they're, and they're, and they're going. Now, obviously they can afford to do that. Uh, not everybody can afford to just leave their job, but it seems to me like there's just, with all this focus, you know, like we were just talking about Amazon and, you know, Google has, has, you know, the Alphabet Workers Union has been up there prominently um, with Google's uh, issues, Facebook, it just feels like there's so much focus now on how this past 12 months has changed how people think about work, how they should be treated at work, how they view work in their life. So this is my philosophical question for you both personally and, and what you see among the people you work with, you know, how has the meaning of work 
and being a worker right now changed in your view? Uh, and does this affect how you are going forward with uh, making the workplace a better place? Philosophical thoughts from either of you on that. Well, so I can, I'm going to start not so philosophical and then I can move into the philosophical. Um, you know, I think for the folks that I get to get the privilege to work with every day through Silicon Valley Rising and our Essential Workers Council, I think uh, we're in a moment where folks are done with being called heroes. Folks are done with the conversation around thanking them for their work through the last year of the pandemic. And they're done having to fight the same damn fight. And it's felt like we're in a moment where the workers that I work with are saying, we actually need some action behind those words. And we need to go back to the basics. Like we still have to fight for paid sick days. The fight for hazard pay for essential workers in a pandemic was a fight. Like there is these fights that we actually haven't moved past that the workers that I work with continue to have to fight for every single day. You know, we've got McDonald's workers that have had to fight for PPE still. So it's like those conversations almost don't allow for the visioning in some ways and for, you know, that conversation. And at the same time, I think, you know, from a, from a personal perspective, I also think that as organizers, it has also pushed us to dream a little bit about what work should be. So it's, yes, it's, it's kind of the basics of safety and health and dignity and pay, but it's also about making sure that folks have vacation time, can take time off, have the ability to be with their kids and take them to soccer practice. And that it's not just some, this idea out there that's only for people that make X amount or do X type of work, but that it should be a part of who we are as a society and that we should all be demanding a different way um, of how we work and how we show up in our workplaces and how we're seen. So I don't want to give it up and just say it's for that thinking and that philosophy is for other type of work. Um, and I also want to ground us in what people are experiencing every day. I think I think Google sees many of the same things, and and broader, more broadly within Alphabet, uh, we see you know called into even more sharp relief than it has been in the past. The like huge dichotomy between some workers and other workers at Google. You know, Google has given extra paid days off. Uh, you know, free holidays to its full time workers, while you know. Um, temps and vendors are are still you know not in that situation and and have had to fight and have lost fights for continued hazard pay um, you know during the the day in South Carolina with literally the largest number of coronavirus cases a Google VP stood up and said yeah we really don't think the hazard pay program is going to come back it's not that you know high of a priority for us so um, I, I think for many many people uh, the goal of work is work. It's it's paying the bills. It's making sure that you can can stay in a place that you can make your your household you know be what it is. While for you know the more privileged among us, and I count myself very much among that. You know we've had opportunities to work from home. We've had opportunities to take you know half time. We've had opportunities to take additional vacation days. Um, all of those things, and and really called in the sharp relief that you're focused to seeing between these two types of work that Google just holds very very separately. Um, and 
and it's been hard. It's been hard to sit here and watch, you know, as that is is just there and feel like, you know, I need to fight harder to to bring more equality to the playing field here in in really important ways. Um, and I do actually think that one thing that people have learned is is, you know, some people have learned I can work from home and I hope I never go back into an office. Like that is something that some people have learned, but I know that for myself, I can't wait to get back and have lunch with people again. Now, granted, if I could have lunch with my friends every day instead of my coworkers, maybe it'd be better. But you know, like I, I can't wait to be in person again because I, I miss the connections. I miss the social connections. And and that's among the entire workforce. I miss, you know, uh, the, the, the person behind the coffee bar. I miss the person who, you know, makes the omelets in the morning. Like I, I miss all of these people um, because they're my friends too, you know, like I, I, I keep texting Nate and being like, are you okay? You know, cause I don't get to see him anymore. So, so these are things that, you know, really, um, have, have happened there. And I think some people have learned, you know, things about themselves and about their work and about their home life that they, you know, really are going to take back and, and change a lot of how they do things. Um, but, you know, it's, it's always easy to speak from a position of privilege and be like, oh, I'm going to change this and this and that. When, you know, if, if you're working in a job that doesn't start six figures, you don't have that opportunity and, and really need to bring it more for other people as well. So my last question for you both is we've been talking about Silicon Valley. Um, this is going out ideally to other people in California. And I'm wondering, how should the rest of California view what you're both doing in Silicon Valley, both, you know, uh, geographically, internally within a company? Do you think the efforts that you're making there can be replicated in other parts of California? That's part one of the question. And then part two, for people listening in, whether they're a worker, full-time or temp, or a management or a business owner, what advice or what things would you tell them about, you know, running a company in California uh, that is equitable for both workers and management? Uh, so that's part two. You know, what comes to my mind is that in California, I think most of us pride ourselves in being part of a progressive state and part of caring about humanity and a part of caring about our environment and caring about so many things that um, you know make up our world. And when I think about advice or how to really thinking about, um, I think about how do we center humans in that? How do we center people? How do we center workers that make it possible for us to love our great state and make it possible to do everything that we love to do in California? And so um, my recommendation is to really think about what does it mean to invest in workers? What does it mean to really reflect a progressive place or a progressive workplace or state that actually believes that workers must share in the prosperity that we see in our state and in companies and corporations? Um, and I think the very tangible way is through unions. Like that is our perspective is that unions is one of the core ways that you shift power and build power within workplaces so that that is achieved. Um, and so I think my request to, to employers is that, you know, workers are organizing and they're doing it in Silicon Valley and they're doing it across the country. And so how do they want to position both their company themselves and like what kind of company do they want to be in this world? One that fights that or one that actually figures out how to honor those workers. And, and you know, if workers have the desire to organize that they're given that freedom to do so. Um, and I, I also think it's about, you know, whether they're ready or not 
workers are coming. So I both do it from a perspective of like openness and like, let's figure this out together. And like, if they're not ready, workers are coming. And so them really figuring out how they want to show up when workers come to their doorstep and say, "Uh uh-uh, not enough. And here's what we need you to do. Yeah. And I absolutely agree with everything that was said there. And I I just want to add, you know, Within Alphabet Workers Union, of course, we're working with those people across the country, uh, not just in California. Um, and and all the lessons that apply in the Silicon Valley apply everywhere else. In fact, I would say that um, while Silicon Valley has a lot of attention paid to it, in a lot of ways, we're actually behind. Uh, I think there's a mindset of individual, you know, um, uh, success or meritocracy that I think is sometimes amusingly unmerited, uh, that, that really leads to, I think, Silicon Valley seeing itself as, as special. We don't need unions. We don't need XYZ. We don't need, you know, all these other things. And it turns out that um, the reason that people feel they don't need them is because the the 1% or the top 10% or whatever are are in a position where, yeah, you may not, you may see yourself as fine, but if you, that's only if you can ignore kind of the, the differences between you and the other workers around you who make it possible to do your job. Um, and I think that that's really, you know, important for, for, you know, us to hear, um, and, and integrate that we're not alone in this. We're all in this together and we really need to act more like that. Um, and I would say that the the same thing goes to management. You know, you, you don't, you don't get to do this alone. You don't have the ability to do this alone. That's why you hire the workers in the first place. Uh, you can't write all the code, you can't run all the servers. And so you, you, we really do have to work together. And, and I think especially on working conditions, especially on things like, um, you know, hazard pay or PPE or other things like that, the answer has to be the workers know best. Um, and, and, you know, you really need to be listening to them far more. Um, because that really is where the knowledge is from people who are on the shop floor, who are, you know, in the code editor, you know, whatever it is to, to figure out where things are, that's really where the knowledge is. And you got to respect that in a way that I think has been missed in a lot, especially big companies, but, but even in smaller companies and really needs to be taken to the fore. Well, Chris and Maria, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we are recording this on a Friday, so I hope that uh, you get some time off this weekend to enjoy um, the fruits of your hard labor. Uh, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks so much. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. This changes everything, episode five, which was recorded on April 23rd, 2021. Thanks to Maria Noel Fernandez and Christopher Schmidt for taking the time to talk with us. Also, thanks to Nate Graham and Caleb Clark for recording and producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you find our podcasts worth listening to in these difficult times, please make a donation and support our efforts to produce informative and inspiring conversations about what Californians should expect in this post-pandemic future. You can do that, as well as keep tabs on upcoming podcast episodes, events, and other information about us by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.